Good morning. If you've driven past a Starbucks, or rather through a Starbucks lately, or you've been in Target, or you've come anywhere near my home, you will notice it is Christmas time. And we don't have any lights outside. That's not how you would notice. You would notice from the blaring music that would be radiating through the walls and through the windows, uh, which, if I'm being honest, have been, you know, blaring since June, July-ish. So I know some of you are purists, you know, only after Thanksgiving folk, but, you know, more power to you. You know, I just, I'm a, I'm a half-year kind of guy of uh, celebrating the incarnation. Uh, so we're going to take a short break from 1 Corinthians. I know you guys love spiritual gifts, and you're ready for chapter 15. You're ready to get to talk about the resurrection. We're going to get there, but we're going to take a short couple weeks to talk about uh, Christmas, to, to celebrate the incarnation, a short little Advent series. And so normally, uh, if you're new to Parkway, what we normally do is walk through uh, a book, Go through a series. So 1 Corinthians we've been going through for a while, and we're, uh, we practice expository preaching here. We go line by line and explain what the text means, right? We don't want to just make up our stuff. We want the Bible, the meaning of the Bible, to be uh, the meaning of our sermons. Uh, and today, as we take a little break, we're going to, one, go away from our series, and today we're going to wade into the waters of a topical sermon. I know, I know. We're going to get back to expository preaching in a few weeks. But today will be slightly more expo- or, uh, topical. Uh, John 1, 14 will be kind of our anchor text, but we'll be all over uh, looking at uh, the, the incarnation, the message of the incarnation. You may think, why pick John if this is a Christmas sermon? Shouldn't you be in Luke 2 or in Matthew? Uh, whereas those focus on the story of Christmas, Mary, baby Jesus in the manger things, everything we just sang about, John actually gives us the message of Christmas. John 1 gives us the message of Christmas. So that's what we're going to focus on today. We're going to look at uh, three things. Who our God is, who our Savior is, and who our salvation is. Three things. Who our God is, who our Savior is, and who our salvation is. Let me pray, and then we will begin. Father, we love you. We thank you. Uh, for Christmas, although we live uh, in a world where our whole, uh, our whole Western society celebrates it, we know the meaning of it. It's, it's about the Eternal Father sending His Son. And so I pray uh, as we look at your scriptures today, we look at that truth, I pray that that's what would encourage us, though we, we love Santa. Santa's great, and we love gifts and family and celebration and all the fun things that our society celebrates. I pray that our ultimate joy would be found in you sending your eternal son uh, to redeem us and to bring us into your family as your adopted sons and daughters. I pray that that truth would weigh heavy on our hearts, whether it's something we've never really focused on or something that we focus on all the time. I pray that your spirit would uh, just open the eyes of our hearts, that we might worship more, we might know you a bit more, might delight in you a bit more, uh, and glorify you a bit more. So we pray this in the name of the one who came down, your son, Jesus. Amen. Uh, so, Parkway, one of the things that is pretty obvious is that we have a pretty high view of theology. We do our theological equipping classes before the service every week except December and July. So we have a high view of theology, not as a kind of ivory tower type uh, conviction, but thinking, you know, this is how we grow. The more we know about God, the more we can love him and worship him. And that's how we grow in our Christian life. And one of the difficult things about just doing theology, talking about God, uh, is we're human. And so we can't say everything all at once. So we kind of separate, uh, systematize, if you will, 
our theology. So we talk, okay, theology of the scriptures, theology of God, theology of Jesus, Christology, theology of man and sin, theology of salvation, theology of the church, theology of the end times, everybody's favorite. That's where the cults tend to hang out. Uh, and so if you look at uh, you know, Parkway's website right now and you go to our statement of faith, you'll see what we believe broken up like that. Scripture, God, Christology, man, sin, salvation, end times, church. Or if you've been through our membership class, that is literally all we do. We're like, we're, you know, Parkway and this is our philosophy ministry. Here's three hours of reading through our statement of faith. So we do that. And one of the interesting things uh, about church history, you know, we're 2,000 years since Jesus. One of the interesting things about church history is the church historically focuses, you know, scripture, God, salvation, focus of the age is on what you're fighting about. Okay, so let me give an example. What have we spent more time over the past three, five years talking about than anything else, you included? Uh, You know, what is justice? Social justice versus biblical justice. Gender, things like that, right? Uh, Truth not being defined by your feelings, right? That's what all of our efforts have gone to. That's what the church, that is the evangelical conversation. Why? Because that's what our world is talking about, right? So we're all, the, the church is always fine, worshiping, having a good time. And then someone outside's like, Jesus isn't God. And you're like, okay, that's wrong. We've got to talk about that. Okay, Jesus is God. And so you focus on what you fight about. That's what the church has done for the past 2,000 years. And so we, as Protestants, who, who are we protesting as protestants? Who are we protesting the Catholics, yeah, the Roman Catholics, right? All right, so uh, Martin Luther, right, our, our, our guys, the Protestant reformers, what are we focused on in that long line? God, Jesus, man, salvation. That's where all our effort goes to, right? Justification by faith alone, not through the sacraments. Salvation by grace alone, not through our works. Forgiveness through Christ alone, not through, you know, the church or some sort of other mediator other than Jesus. That's where our focus goes, on salvation, Okay, in other words, we give most of our attention on the what, right? What God has done for us, salvation. And that's great, right? You focus on what you fight about. That's what we fight the Catholics about. Uh, that's great. It makes us just razor sharp. It shows just the effects of the cross in just incredible, beautiful ways. But there is unintended consequences when you have a hyper-focus in one area and therefore aren't focused on other areas, okay? When you assume other areas, Okay, so if, if say you're married uh, and you just assume my spouse loves me, they know I'm proud of them, know I know, they know I think they're beautiful or handsome, and so you never tell them ever, what's going to happen to that marriage? I would assume, I would guess, it would grow cold, right? It would grow, why did you ever tell me you love me? Well, you should know, I married you, didn't I, right? That's tip, hopefully not what we do, but if you were to do that, just assume they know, right, that would grow cold, and so... When we, as Protestants, focus so much on salvation, typically when we talk about God, when we talk about the who, talk about the Trinity, what do we say? There's one God, three persons, each person is fully God, and then we stop talking, right? Don't want to say anything else, don't want to be a heretic. The Trinity is some sort of confusing mystery math problem that we worship. Let's get on to justification by faith. That's what we do as Protestants. Uh, And when I was in seminary, I had a professor say, that's great, good job recognize you have not said one thing about the character of your God. All you've done is a math problem. All you've done is juxtaposed oneness and threeness and then moved on to salvation by grace alone, right? So the danger is when we assume, 
we know about God, right? We don't fight the Catholics on that. We all believe in the Trinity. There's a natural tendency for that to become secondary and God to become very abstract and God to become this floating ball of love or wrath or whatever attribute we want to throw at him. And ironically, as we're nearing Christmas, we often treat God a lot like how we treat Santa. He's this weird, you know, grandpa far away. We'll lob some prayers up to him or a gift list up to him. And who knows if he responds? We don't really know, right? He's watching. He's indifferently, you know, he's indifferent towards you most of the time. He's really watching what? Your morals. Sees when you're sleeping, knows when you're awake, knows when you've been bad or good. So you better be good. That's how a lot of us view God. Now, he's that abstract guy watching only to watch your performance. Now compare that to the kind of view of God we see in the Psalms. The Psalms that's given to us in our scriptures as kind of this prayer book given to us by God to say, you want to know how you pray to me? Here's 150 examples, right? And how do the psalmists pray? You are my shield. You're my defender. You're my fortress. You're my shepherd. When all others desert me, you stand by me. And then when they feel him distant, what do they say? Where are you? My enemies are all around me. I don't know if you've noticed. Show up. Deliver me. Right? I, uh, uh, the same professor who uh, pointed out the Trinity problem pointed out the psalmists have such an understanding of who their God is that when he doesn't answer their prayers, they let him have it. Right? They just yell at him. Hey, I don't know if you noticed. I prayed. You didn't show up and things are going bad for me. Can you please listen and answer? Right? Do we do that? God put that in there to say, hey, here's your example. Right? Now, what's the difference between us and the Psalms when we pray? Thank you for the food. You know, keep my kids from drugs when they go to college and give us a safe travel to grandma's house for Christmas, right? Very shallow, not bad prayers, but compared to the Psalms, very shallow. What's the difference? Is it just they're more spiritually mature than us? I don't think so. I think the main difference is they understand the character of who their God is. They understand the character of who their God is. He's not abstracted them. He's their shepherd. He's not far off, distant. Maybe he hears you. Maybe he doesn't. He's the one watching. He's the one protecting you. When the enemies surround, what's the wall around them? Him. They understand the character of who their God is. For us, he's often abstract. He's indifferent. His character has a question mark. Now, it is a part of the very nature of sin that you would view God as worse than he really is. A part of your sin nature is that you're always going to view God as, as less trustworthy than he is, less loving than he is. Your, your, your mind is always going to degrade his character. What does the serpent attack in Genesis 3? Think about this. Adam and Eve, creation, everything's great. You're in this garden, you know, you're hanging out, you're naked, you're eating fruit, whatever, it's great. Uh, and then the, the devil comes up, Genesis 3, and what does he attack? In Eve's mind? Does he say, I know God said, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but man, it tastes real good, so he probably should. Does he go after the rule? Does he go after the moral? You're missing something real great over here. No, what does he say? God said, what? You're not going to die. The reason he told you that is he knows you eat this fruit, what's going to happen? You're going to be like him. He'll be jealous. What is he attacking? God's character. And the same devil that whispered in Eve's ear whispers in your ear. 
And the same sin nature that crept up in Adam and Eve's heart, when they realize they're naked, they sprint and they hide. Again, misunderstanding a merciful God, hiding from him, constantly whispering, look at you screwing up again. How tired of you must he be? You better perform well. He's watching. Sure, he loves you or whatever. I guess he has to. He doesn't like you. He begrudgingly does it because the gospel makes him. We have these thoughts. You notice how similar that is to Genesis 3. It's the same whispers, the same lies. He's cold and he's distant. Here's what we need to see today. Nothing could be further from the character of the God of the Bible. Nothing could be further from the character of who your God is. Notice, God is constantly, all throughout the scriptures, wanting. When we don't understand who he is, when he's far off, he's constantly coming down. He's the one that's going after us. In creation, he doesn't create us because he needs to. Father, Son, and Spirit, totally great, sharing in their perfect fellowship together. But out of an overflow of love, he creates, makes us in his image so that we might know him. We might walk with him in the garden. We rebel, we run away. Moses, when he stumbles upon the burning bush, he's not looking after God. God's the one showing up saying, I'm coming after my people, revealing his name. I am who I am. I am the God who is the temple, the tabernacle. God isn't just like, I'm up here, you know, I'm pulling the strings. I guess I'll choose Israel and make them win all these wars. What does he do? Build the tabernacle, build the temple, set up the sacrificial system. Why? I want to dwell in your midst. I want you to camp around my presence. God is constantly, constantly coming down. Why? He wants us to know his character. He wants us to know who he is, the exact opposite of Genesis 3. And we have, we looked at the story before, but we have in Exodus 34, the Old Testament's greatest example of God revealing who he is. So we'll look at that together. Genesis 34. So what's happened? God has just rescued Israel out of Egypt, right? Destroyed the most powerful nation uh, in, in the world by himself, led them through the Red Sea, parked them in Mount Sinai, says, I want to be your God. I want you to be my people. And what happens immediately? Golden calf. Rebellion, the covenant is broken. Moses prays that God would forgive them. He does. God forgives this rebellious people. And what's Moses' response to God's incredible forgiveness? He just blurts out, show me your glory. I want to see your face. This, 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 who is this God that would forgive such rebels? Show me your glory. And God says, you can't see my face and live, but here's what I'm going to do. I'll put you up in this rock and I'll pass before you and I'll declare to you my name. And you can kind of look out and see my back. It's a strange picture, kind of like when Sonic the Hedgehog runs by and he's gone, but there's that blue trail, you know. Moses gets to see God's like afterglory, whatever that is. That's kind of what he sees. So God passes by and declares who he is. Says this, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. This is the greatest revelation of God's character that we have in the Old Testament, this scene right here. Now, up to this point, what do they know about who God is? They know two things. They know he's God, right? I am who I am, saw that at the burning bush, and they know he's powerful, right? Who else could defeat Egypt and all the Egyptians' false gods. That's all they know about God. They're not, you know, the rest of the Bible hadn't been written yet. They don't know what we know. That's all they know. He's God and he's really powerful. And he's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's God. 
And here we see, notice what God's doing. This is who I am. This is my character, merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, but not a pushover. I'm still a God of justice. Notice that, revealing his character. Again, God wants with all his might, all his being, for us to know who he is. He doesn't want himself in the abstract. He wants us to know who he is. So Moses gets to see it. This is the greatest revelation we see in the Old Testament. Moses gets the closest, closer than any prophet. But notice with Moses, there's still a limit. There's still a limit. I want to see your face. No. You see my Sonic the Hedgehog afterglory. That's not the theological term. Uh, But I'll declare to you my name. Moses, there's a barrier. There's a limit in the Old Testament. And so you might say, that's, this is all great, or maybe you won't say that, but what in the world does this have to do with Christmas? Now, here's where we get to John 1. That's who your God is, not the God of Genesis 3 that the devil's whispering lies about, a God who wants you to know him. He doesn't want to be abstract. He wants you to know his character, his incredible character, but there's a limit until we get to John 1. Moses says, show me your glory, and God says, no, I'll declare to you my name, and then we see this in John 1. First of all, all throughout Genesis, or Jesus' ministry, notice the continual question that's asked of him is, who is this guy? His parents, when he goes to the temple at age 14 and is wowing the teachers, who is this? How is he doing this? Who is this guy? The Pharisees, when he forgives sins, who does this guy think that he is? His disciples, when he calms the storm, we never read the last verse, his disciples are filled with great fear and say, who is this Man, that's the constant question. Who is this guy? John tells us right at the beginning of his gospel. We'll look at verse 1 and then skip down to verse 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14, and the Word, the eternal God, became flesh and dwelt among us. Notice these next couple words. And we have seen his glory. Did Moses see his glory? No. We have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. We have seen this glory. Moses asks for it. He gets told no. And here in Jesus, we see it. We see it. We have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father. John's pointing out not another God, not another uh, secondary glory. What Moses is asking for, we see in Jesus. Fully there, full of grace and truth. That's the message of Christmas. The eternal, infinitely glorious God has come down. Not abstract on top of a mountain anymore. He's come down. Let me look at, we're going to look at four other New Testament passages that all highlight the same point. First one is John 14. Later on in John's gospel, Jesus is in the upper room. He's about to go to the cross and he's having a conversation with his disciples. And he says this, If you have known me, Jesus talking, if you have known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have what? Seen him. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Look at Philip. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father and it is enough for us. What's he asking? He's asking for exactly what Moses is asking for. He sees his opportunity, misunderstands Jesus. Oh, if I see you, see the father, okay. He knows his Old Testament. Okay, I'm going to get what Moses didn't. Show me the Father, and it will be enough. What does Jesus say? Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me 
has seen the Father. Philip asking what Moses has, show me your glory. I want to see the Father. Jesus says what? You have. Don't you know who I am? He who has seen me has seen the Father. Next passage, Colossians 1. Look at this uh, verse 15 and then go down to 19. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He's the image of the invisible God. So we can't see God. He's invisible. That's how invisibility works. At least that's what the scientists say, right? How do we see God? His son. He's the image of the invisible God. The early church fathers loved this passage. Athanasius, St. Athanasius would say, Jesus took on flesh so that we could see the invisible God. He came down so that we could see him, the God we couldn't see. Image of the invisible God. In him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Hebrews 1, again, picking up on the same idea, the first three verses. Long ago and at many times and in many places, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. Notice verse three. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. In the past, God spoke to us by Moses, carrying down the tablets, his prophets, Jeremiah, Isaiah, saying, thus says the Lord. Now he's spoken to us through his son. The image here isn't just, you know, he's another prophet. It's That's the final word, right? You'll hear people say, you know, Jesus is God's mic drop. There's nothing else to say after Jesus shows up because why? He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, of his character. The shepherds looking down at the manger see more than Moses saw. The little drummer boy, if he was there, I need to reread the commentaries, sees more than Moses saw the exact imprint of his character. One more. 2 Corinthians 5, or 4, 5 through 6. Paul, right in the Corinthians, he has to write another letter. Spoiler alert, we'll finish 1 Corinthians. They don't, you know, there's still some problems. They're attacking his ministry. And so he writes this letter and, and a portion of it, he's kind of explaining what he has been called to do by God. What is his ministry? And so chapter four, he's giving this long explanation. He says this in verse five and six. For what we, meaning Paul and the other apostles, proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. We don't proclaim ourselves, we proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, the God who said in Genesis 1-1, let there be light, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Okay, so stop there. God has shown in us, the apostles' hearts, to give this gospel, what is the gospel? The light of the knowledge of the glory of God, where? In the face of Jesus Christ. After this Exodus story, when Moses comes down the mountain, after God declares his name, you remember what happens next? Something's happened to his face. He's walking around, he doesn't really know what's going on, but his face, just from seeing God's, you know, the fringes of God's glory, his face is shining so brightly, what does he have to do? He has to cover it, right? Put that cover over your face, You take it off when you're talking to God, but we can't handle it, right? That's just from the fringes. His face is shining with just the radiance of the glory of God. And here, where do we see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God? In the face of Jesus Christ. Again, over and over and over again, the New Testament author is saying, don't you see who your Savior is? Don't you see who the eternal God that came down in Christmas is? The exact, perfect revelation 
of our God. So what does this have to do with Christmas? This is the very nature of Christmas. God sent his son, God himself, not to appear in a vision, but to take on human nature, to unite himself to us and give us the perfect, not lacking in any way, perfect revelation of who God is, of his character. So from now on, you say, you know, you want to know God? We don't go up the mountain anymore. God came down the mountain. The eternal God, the Son, came down. We look at Jesus if we want to see God and see his perfect revealed character, no longer to be taken in the abstract, no longer to be a divine floating ball of love or justice or wrath or whatever attribute you want to attribute to him, the perfect revelation of God. Uh, there's a old movie called Goodwill Hunting. Uh, I always make those jokes because I'm young and it's fun to make those jokes. I'm just now getting to where like movies I watch, like my little brother's like, yeah, I haven't seen that movie, it's super old. I'm like, huh, this is what my dad feels like when I make these comments. Uh, there's uh, Good Will Hunting, great movie, uh, where Will Hunting uh, is, you know, this just genius, brilliant kid, but he's super troubled. And so uh, his uh, psychiatrist, psychologist, one of those two, whichever one is better, is sitting, played by Robin Williams, sitting on a bench with him and trying to explain to him what he's lacking because he's got essentially infinite book knowledge and so just thinks he's smart, thinks no one can help him. And he says this, you know, if I asked you about art, Robin Williams talking to uh, Will, if I asked you about art, you'd probably give me the skinny on every art book ever written, but you can't tell me what it smells like in the Sistine Chapel. You've never been out of Boston. You've never stood there and looked up at that beautiful painting. If I asked you about war, you'd probably quote me Shakespeare, but you've never been near one. You've never held your uh, friend's head in your lap, watching him gasp his last breath, asking you for help. If I asked you about love, you'd probably quote me a sonnet, but you've never stood before a woman and been completely vulnerable. What's he doing there? You've got all the abstract knowledge, all the book knowledge that you want, but you can't apply it to yourself. It's up there. And Jesus Christ came down so that God just wouldn't be this up there idea, but came down to be someone that we could see, we could know, we could hear from. The God that we read about, this God of the abstract comes down, never to be abstract again. And when he comes down, He overturns all these false ideas that we've had in our minds since the garden, since Genesis 3. This idea of either he hates us, he's super off, you know, in the distance, or we do what we often do, especially in the South, is make him over in our image, right? We have moralistic, therapeutic deism. He's just kind of a butler. He's there, he's your pal. He's there when you need him, and then he goes away when you're off living your life. Jesus comes down and overturns every false notion we could ever have. He flips the tables of the prideful, but a bruised reed he will not break. He's infinitely powerful, but what does he say? I'm gentle and lowly. He lays low the prideful, but he comes to the sinner, to the prostitute, to the leper, to give them rest, to give them peace. Though he holds us together, holds our very being together, he lays down his life for us. C.S. Lewis wrote a letter years ago uh, where he had a friend who was wrestling with this, had realized that he had just made these false gods, taken God in the abstract and just kind of molded him however he wanted to serve his purposes. And he's realizing how empty that pursuit is. And so he's starting to realize, I think I need to find and worship the real Jesus. And C.S. Lewis writes in this letter, go on. So go on. You're on the right track now, getting to the real man behind the plaster dolls that have been substituted for him. 
This is the appearance in human form of the God who made the tiger and the lamb, of the avalanche and the rose. He'll frighten and puzzle you, but the real Christ can be loved and admired as the doll can't. He's not an abstract idea. He's not a far-off, distant God. He came down. That's what we celebrate on Christmas. He's a personal God. He's not distant. And he's perfect. Jesus Christ perfectly reveals God's character in the incarnation. But there's one more piece. That's who our God is, right? Not distant. Wants you to know him. Wants to reveal his character. Who our Savior is. Jesus, the perfect revelation of our God. And then the last piece, who, not what, who our salvation is. So you may be saying, yeah, Jesus is the perfect revelation of God. That's great. How does that affect me? How does that affect us? And here's the thing. He didn't come down just so that you could see and say, you know, Jesus to say, this is what I'm like. Are we done with this? No, he didn't come down just so that you could do that. If he did, that he's just someone to admire. He didn't come down simply so that you could see him, right? That wouldn't satisfy us. Again, C.S. Lewis, he'll help us out a lot, in, uh, a lot today in the sermon, says this. Uh, about what we desire. He says, we do not want merely to see beauty, though God knows even that would be bounty enough. We want something else which can hardly be put into words. We want to be united with the beauty that we see. We want to pass into it, to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it and to become part of it. And here's where we get to how this applies to you. Jesus Christ didn't just come down so that you could see God. Jesus Christ came down so that you could know God. Jesus Christ came down so that you could know God. Knowing in the Bible isn't just intellectual knowledge, although that's part of it. It's something that's relational. It's incredibly personal. It's, it's this personal communion. It's fellowship. Uh, I've used this example before, and I'll use it again. That's how uh, I'm going to speak. I give these kind of prefaces sometimes. I'm like, that's not necessary to say. That's what's happening in my mind as I'm preaching to you. I've given this example before. Here it is again. I love... Uh, with an almost sinful obsession, Lionel Messi, okay? He's the greatest athlete. He's a soccer player. He's the greatest uh, in the history of the world. There will be none better. doesn't matter. Uh, and I have like a almost, yeah, like concerningly so. Like Claudia, my wife's like, should we, should we pull back on this? It's getting out of hand. The obsession with him, okay? I love him. I watch every game. Uh, I make my kids chant, Messi, Messi. Every time he touches the ball and they do it, Joe, my little one-year-old, can't really talk, but she still goes, oh, ah, oh, ah. She does it. She chants. Uh, when someone insults Messi, I, inside me, gets upset. Like, actually, when you do it, it's like, ha, ha. I'm like, that's not funny. Don't ever talk about him like that. Right? I get upset. Now, if I were to drive to Paris, where he's living now, and knock on his door, got past the security guard somehow, knocked on his door and said, I'm here. You want to hang out? He would say, uh, I don't speak English, first of all. And second of all, I don't know who you are, right? So I can know about him and have all this weird obsession of him more than any other person, but I don't know him. I don't actually personally know him. He's a stranger to me, and I am to him. Jonathan Edwards talks about uh, there's two ways that you can know honey. One, you can understand the chemical makeup of it. Okay, this is what honey is. This is its color. This is how it comes together. This is how bees uh, spit it out. What is it, what's happening there? You can know everything about it or, or you could taste it. You could taste it. There's two ways of knowing. You can know everything about it or you could simply taste it. It's one thing to look at a mountain Right? All of our screensavers are either our kids or, you know, 
whatever mountain Apple has put on their latest software, it's quite another thing to visit the Alps. It's one thing to watch The Bachelor or to watch whatever romantic comedy, you know, Matthew McConaughey has cranked out next. It's quite another to gaze at the love of your life as they walk down the aisle. There's two ways of knowing. Jesus didn't just come so that we could know about. He came so that we could know him personally, intimately, so that you can know God as your father. The incarnation, the message of Christmas is so that we could taste and see the goodness of our God so that we could know him. John 17, one through three, this is one of the most incredible chapters in the Bible. Jesus, we get this whole chapter of Jesus, God the Son, praying to God the Father. And here's how he starts it. Right before he's about to go to the cross. When Jesus had spoken these words to the disciples in the upper room, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to whom you have given to him. So notice what's happening. The son being given authority to give eternal life, right? To give eternal life. What is that eternal life that he's about to give? Verse three, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's what Jesus gives in eternal life. And here's the difference, really, between Christianity and, you know, the common conservative moralism covered over in Christian language that we see in the Bible Belt. Knowing God isn't just intellectual understanding of him or saying, yep, I believe to certain doctrines or casual acquaintance with him or praying a generic prayer when you were four about Jesus coming into your heart or anything like that. It's having Jesus Christ as the chief end of your affections. It's delighting in him. It's having him being at the very core of your being. He's your chief prize. C.S. Lewis, again, says there's, you know, often we think there's two kinds of people, disobedient and obedient. He says, not two, there's actually three kinds of people. There's disobedient, people who just live for themselves, right? Disobey anything that gets in their way. There's the second person who is an obedient person, but they obey uh, external rules from the outside. They'll obey, but begrudgingly. They don't want to. So he describes it as someone paying their taxes, right? No one loves that, uh, right? You, you hope you get something back. It's just kind of begrudging. And then there's a third kind of person, someone that rather being, you know, in competition between God and, and self just puts the self to death and can actually say like Paul in Galatians 2, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live the Christ that lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And Lewis says the core of Christianity isn't just doing what God says, it's enjoying God. And here's the quote. The price of Christ is something, in a way, much easier than moral effort. It's to want him. Something so simple we often just blow right by it as we rush to our, how can we perform? It's to want him. In Ephesians, Paul gives, in, in chapter 1 and chapter 2, one of the most beautiful displays of our salvation. When we were dead in our trespasses and sins, you know, by nature children of wrath, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, made us alive together with Christ. We've been saved by grace. He gives us this beautiful display of the theology of our salvation. And then in chapter 3, he prays for the Ephesians. And what does he pray for? 
Does he pray for them to, okay, now that you know this truth, live better, you know, have better, better morals, think more rightly, you know, don't be dumb. Of course he cares about those things. That's not what he prays for. What does he pray for? Look at Ephesians 3. For this reason, I bow my knee before the Father. Here's the, here's the prayer for the Ephesians. I bow my knee before the Father. What do I pray? That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Why? That you may be rooted and ground, you being rooted and grounded in love may have the strength to comprehend. Listen to this. You may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge and that you may be filled with the fullness of God. His ultimate prayer is that they would know the unknowable. They would delight in this infinite love of God, know the heights that can never be reached, know the depths that can never be searched out of who their God is, the God that you can never grow bored with. Now, here's the question. Here's, a, here's the fun, awkward application question. Does that characterize your Christian walk? Does that characterize your Christian life? If we were to strip away everything external and get to the core of your walk with God, what's there? Is it just tradition? Is it the God of your parents? Is it, you know, conservative morals covered over with Christian language? Is it an intellectual belief in a God you know you're supposed to believe in, so you'll say yes to a couple other doctrines? Or is it what we see in David's heart? We get to see this in David's heart. Strip back everything. What's at the core of David? We see it in Psalm 27, 4. One thing I ask of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Why? To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and inquire in his temple. What's at the core of David? I want to gaze at your beauty. I want you. I want to dwell in the house of the Lord and gaze upon your beauty. That's the core of Christianity. That's what separates Christianity from every other religion. It's not a far-off angry God who dictates rules that we need to follow. It's knowing this God personally intimately. Of course, we follow his rules, but out of love for him. If you're not having an affair on your spouse because you think it's a rule, that's not great. I would hope you wouldn't be having an affair because of your love for your spouse, right? You see the difference there. If we were to meet and you're like, yeah, not cheating on him because, you know, I heard that's bad. I'm like, okay, I think we have deeper problems than just the fact that you're following this rule. You see that. Christianity is not just following the morals. It's knowing him, knowing him. Now, us good reformed trained folk be like, wait a minute, I'm hearing a lot about delight. I'm not hearing a lot about glorifying God. Isn't that what we're supposed to do? Yes, yes, we're good reformed folk here. And that's, again, we're getting to the beauty of who our God is. When we delight in him, we glorify him. When you're eating your favorite meal, as maybe you're about to do on Christmas, do you stop and say, oh, I'm so sorry. You know, this food, you're great. Uh, this, you taste real good. No, you just enjoy. You just right? Your face lights up. No words are even said. Why? You're, you're letting everyone know how much you love the food by your delight in it. C.S. Lewis again says this, the Scotch catechism says man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, ever, but we shall know that these are the same thing. To fully enjoy is to glorify. In commanding us to glorify him, he's inviting us to enjoy him or 
John Piper's very famous line, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. The God you were made to worship is also the God you were made to infinitely enjoy. It's not one or the other. The God you were made to glorify and to worship is the God you were made to infinitely enjoy. And we can only enjoy him if we know him. Now we're back to Christmas. How do we know him? Athanasius said, God became man that we might know God. We might share in fellowship, participate in God. That's the message of Christmas. The eternal God, the Son, Jesus, came down so that you could know him, and by knowing him, delight in him, and by delighting in him, glorify him. And there's one more piece that we're missing. Don't get this backwards. You are not running after a distant God. God is running after a very, very distant you. There's one more piece. God did not come down just so that we could know him. Jesus Christ came down so that you could know he knows you. Jesus came down so that you could know God knows you. What do you think I care about more? My kids, I have two little kids, a two-year-old and a one-year-old. My kids telling me they love me or them knowing how much I love them. And if you don't know the answer to that question, I, I would assume you're not a parent. I actually had a uh, mini breakdown. This will show my emotional fragility. Uh, I had like a mini breakdown the other day, literally just because we put the kids to bed. I was in the kitchen, you know, cleaning some stuff. Uh, Claudia was in the room as well. And I was like, I just started to think about, you know, Harvey can speak a little bit of English now. And I tell him I love him all the time. And he, I don't, he's not, you know, he, he won't get it. He doesn't, he understands, yeah, dad loves me, but he doesn't understand the depths. And I literally just started like crying and like weeping in my wife's arms because I knew this was going to happen. Okay, so he, his whole life, he's going to hear, I love you for me a thousand times a day. And I'm going to play with him and I'm going to help him and I'm going to hold him when he's sad. He'll never know the depths of my love for him. He'll never know how my heart explodes just by thinking about him right now. He'll never know that. The depths, yeah, he'll get it. It's not a sad thing. I'm just saying it's a reality. Now, if I, a sinful, selfish father, feel that, how much more an infinitely loving father? You see that? What a different picture that is than the distant, indifferent God we often picture in our heads. God came down so that you could know God knows you. And here's where we get to the core of a lot of our problems. There's a, there's a movie that came out a couple years ago that was not great. I'm not recommending it by any means, uh, but Julie Roberts is in it. It's called Ben is Back. Her son, who's in his early 20s, uh, is a uh, drug addict and had been to rehab and had kind of snuck out and come back to their house and... They're spending Christmas together, and uh, as the movie unfolds, it's just a day, and as it unfolds, it just shows how much he has destroyed his life, their lives, people in the town's lives, people who have OD'd because of him uh, dealing to them and things like that, and his mom, he's, he's realizing this more and more and feeling horrible, and his mom is constantly, Julia Roberts, constantly running after him and telling him it's okay and trying to bring him back into the home, and he finally just has this point where he's had enough, and he pushes her away and says, you don't know me. If you knew me, you'd be done with me. And she just keeps coming back. and says, I do know you. I do know you. And his, 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 the depths of his wickedness can never un outdo her love 
And uh, I thought about how God, the infinite father, knows the most wicked thing you've ever done. He knows the wicked th- most wicked thing that you've ever done. He knows uh, things that no other humans know about you, the things you keep secret, the, ca- the things that you actively think, if people knew that, they'd be done with me. He knows that. And he knows a list far greater of wickedness than you would ever dare imagine about yourself. And he still says, I know you, I love you, I send my son for you. I know you. There's nothing you've done that can shock me, right? This is one of the ironies about the doctrine of election, which is why people hate Calvinism. How could it cause anything but worship? The infinite God knows you to the depths and still says, I choose you. I want to bring you into my family. How could that not cause anything else but worship to explode in your heart? You know him because he knows you. Jesus says, no one can come to me unless what? The father first draws him. J.I. Packer, who wrote the great book, Knowing God, says this, all my knowledge of him depends on his sustained uh, initiative in knowing me. So when you see that baby in the manger, you know your father sees you. He came down, not just that you could know him and delight in him and glorify him, but that you could know that he knows you. That's, again, the message of Christmas. The eternal father sends the eternal God, the son, comes down so that you can know him, enjoy him, be satisfied in him, glorify him, and know that he knows and cherishes you. The father sent his son to make you his son and his daughter. The eternal God the Son came down so that you could become a son or a daughter by grace, by adoption. That's the beauty of Christmas. Again, how different is that God than the distant, cold, abstract God we often picture in our minds? Let's be done with that God. Let's be done with the distant Santa Claus and let's know and see our true God, our Father, and our Savior. I'd like to close. I came across a poem, spoken word. I don't know what's the difference between those two. Is, po- is spoken word just like hips, hip poem, hip poem? I'm going to read it regardless. Uh, you know, sometimes I think when I speak, I shouldn't be doing this for a living. Uh, so I'm going to close with, with this kind of getting at this guy named uh, Glenn Scrivener, who's an English uh, evangelist and does a lot of these things, uh, and he's writing about, you know, Jesus versus Santa, and it's kind of set to the tune of A Night Before Christmas, and so he starts off ranting kind of about Santa's moralism, right? Sees you when you're sleeping, knows when you're awake, be good, you know, get on his list, all that stuff, and then he says this. I'll read this. Granted, this is a strange one to pick, but listen, I'm not really after St. Nick. As strange as he is, and Santa is odd, I'm really addressing most folks' view of God It's God who we see as some distant big guy, some ancient invisible Saint Nick in the sky. He sees when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He's watching and waiting to spot your mistake. And just like with Santa, requests we hand in. We want all his things, but we don't want him. That's our connection with old Father Christmas. We might dress it up. It's essentially business. Throughout the year, good behavior is our onus. When Christmas rolls around, we're expecting our bonus. Just leave us our gifts, Nick. We've been good enough. And now please push on. We've got all your stuff. I mean, Santa is interesting, curious, quirky, but nobody wants him to share their turkey. I'm sure his ho-ho-hos are sublime, but I fear what he'll say when he's drank all our wine. That's old St. Nick, but the picture rings true. It's how we imagine what God is like, too. 
But Christmas resounds with a stunning not so. The one from on high was born down below. To a world in need, he did not send another. God the Son became God our brother. He drew alongside forever to dwell, our God in the flesh, Emmanuel. With God in the manger, this God in the manger upends all our notions, a heavenly stooping, divine demotion. Born in a stable, wriggling on straw, fully committed to life in the raw. Santa gives things and then goes away. Jesus shows up to befriend and to stay. Santa rewards those for good behavior. Jesus draws near to the broken as Savior. If you don't like God, I think I know why. You probably think he's St. Nick in the sky. You're right to reject that faraway stranger. This Christmas, look down to the God in the manger. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you uh, for this incredible doctrine, truth, reality, event that the eternal God invaded time, not just on top of a mountain, but you sent your son to bring us in, Lord. Every longing we could ever long for is found perfectly in him. I pray that this church would not be plagued with the lies of Genesis 3, that you're off, you're distant, you're only watching our performance. What could be more antithetical to the gospel? That you came down to do what we couldn't, to live the life that we couldn't, to pay the penalty we deserve, and to give us the reward we certainly don't deserve, eternal fellowship with you. And so I pray as we take communion, as we minister, that you're, or as we worship about you, your spirit would minister to our hearts, that we would see this as, as we drive down the streets and see all the lights and see the giant blown up Santas and see the manger scenes and see the manger scenes with Santa in the manger scenes and all these different things. I pray that we would just smile and know the unthinkable reality that this is a celebration that God is not a holy God who is unapproachable. You're our father. Why? Because you've sent our, your son to bring us in and that our hearts would be encouraged. We would never look at Christmas the same. We would never look at you the same. That we would forever have this false idea of a distant, abstract God corrected and see our beautiful Father, our incredible Savior, and our incredible Spirit that's sanctifying us. Please do that. We can't do that. We can't muster the strength. Pray that you would do that in our hearts, Lord. And pray in your Son's name. Amen.